ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Norman Swan. Hello, Tegan Taylor. I have to absent myself from most of today's uh, Corona cast because it seems that it is a showdown between two semi-aquatic animals. You, Dr. Swan, are going to be joined by Professor Crab. Professor Brendan Crabb. Well, that was a long bow to, um, you know, to take, but yes, we're muscling you out here. Yeah. To use another aquatic um, phrase. What, muscling? S-S-E-L. Oh, no, that's terrible. I need to get my own back on this, haven't I? All right, with that, I'm walking out the door. It's uh, Coronacast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor on Jagger and Turable Land, but not for much longer because it's over to you. Norman Swan, I'm physician and journalist, speaking to you from Gadigal Land, which is part of the Eora Nation. And the reason for talking to Brendan Crabb is that he had a lot of prominence as head of the Burnett Institute, an expert in both pandemics and, um, and, and diseases of low to middle income countries, as well as what was going on here based on what he knew. And I thought it was time that we did a bit of a catch up with Brendan which is what I did. So, Brendan, from where you sit, you've got a lot of experience of pandemics, of infectious diseases. You certainly been very prominent during the pandemic as a commentator from a research perspective in Australia. From where you sit, where are we sitting right now with COVID in Australia? Well, in Australia and pretty much in the world, I think we're at sort of the pandemic equivalent of DEFCON 3, you know, um, in the uh, in the sort of military sense, with with DEFCON one being the worst and DEFCON five being the least amount of concern, I think in pandemics we were we were at one or two, and we've gone to sort of four or five all of a sudden. But really, we're somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, this year we will still have over four million deaths um, from COVID these days, measured most accurately in in excess deaths. We had about 6 million last year, about 11 million in, in 2021 and 4.5 and million in 2020. So we're back to about 2020 levels. So these are global numbers you're quoting? These are global numbers, yeah. Um, and, and in Australia, the numbers are still, for us, really large. We had 20,000 deaths last year, excess deaths, 14 or so thousand official COVID deaths. This year, we, we, we probably won't reach that number, but it won't be far off in the sort of 15,000 deaths range. Now, what all this means is that life expectancy for the first time in sort of 70 years in the world has gone down substantially in a good couple of years. And in Australia, we don't have the official figure yet, but life expectancy will will decline. And so while it's sort of, these are not into the world figures and, and there might be some improvement. They're still very large numbers and we still see substantial burdens of COVID around the world. There's a, there's a significant uptick at the moment in the UK and the US and uh, many developed countries. Of course, we will follow soon. We don't tend to see huge peaks anymore, but we, we, we see a lot of COVID all the time. This is one of the the sort of least appreciated things I think with COVID is just the sheer volume, the number of people in each country. Australia is no different, where it's the majority of the country get exposed to the virus each year, often multiple times. No, nothing else is like that. Uh, before you get into what the actual disease is, is COVID like the flu and is COVID like the common cold and so on, um, the numbers are extraordinary and and nothing is really changing there because viral evolution continues to outpace 
or at least do very well against the immunity that we're building up through vaccination and, and infection. So still a very big challenge on, on our hands in the developed world and, of course, even more so in the developing world that, that we don't hear much about where you get the direct effects of COVID and then all the indirect effects on uh, the health issues that are there already. Has, haven't vaccination and exposure helped us? Not a lot. I mean, of course it's helped us. Uh, the To, to get um, vaccinated is, has no doubt prevented um, tens of thousands of lives in, in Australia. There's, there's no doubt about that. The questions, like a lot of COVID, is not a binary one as, as to whether vaccinations helped us or whether hybrid immunity works. This notion that after vaccination, you can get infected and get better immunity. All, all of those things are true. Infection-based immunity is why people, individuals recover from COVID and it's why waves disappear. Um, it's in fact why viral evolution uh, takes uh, gets going and, and you get new variants. So Im immunity is good. The point is it's just not good enough. We have policy setting in most of the world where we are relying heavily on infection in the least susceptible people, you know, in, in so-called healthy people, to drive an immunity on the back of vaccination that will get us out of this. It's just not enough. It is working, but it's not enough. And uh, you won't be surprised to hear me say, I think there's there's more we can do in this sort of DEFCON 3. Such as? Well, I think we could be much more concerned about the air we breathe. You know, we've learned a lot. Uh, we, we don't have to set and forget in the same way as, you know, we treat cancer differently now to how we treated cancer even five years ago, you know, depending what it is. We've learned a lot. And one thing we've learned clearly is that COVID is largely an indoor air quality issue. So what are some strategies, some low-hanging fruit, and then maybe some more sophisticated strategies to ensure that our highest risk places are, uh, uh, have clean air, have that air monitored and displayed and, and purified? I mean, there's been some interest in that, and you had a conference not so long ago about it. What should be happening and what's not happening? Well, mostly it's just not being taken anywhere near seriously enough. I mean, there is movement, uh, but, you know, it's... So we're hoping that the pandemic's over and we don't need to bother about it anymore. I think that's true and that we could go back to what was uh, 2019 and, and prior and not learn those those lessons. There's just so much to be gained from from cleaner air. And, you know, I've said it multiple times that... Uh, you know, the biggest uh, misstep in the pandemic, international misstep from WHO right through to our own response, which had so much good about it, but is in the inability to get over this droplet dogma, you know, the idea that that basically COVID's transmitted uh, by large droplets, which is not the case as, as the primary mode. You know, these ventilation strategies, they sound very nice and like... <laughs> Like a little um, afterthought, it's actually central. It's central to why we had outbreaks um, during the pre-vaccine period of quarantine. They were all breakdowns in, in airborne controls from my perspective. Dirtier air inside than outside. That's right. So we can do a lot, starting with monitoring. There are ways to monitor the air that have good surrogate markers uh, and then uh, actions that you can recommend whether it be just opening the windows, of course, until those numbers improve with CO2 that you're monitoring, for example. Uh, it might be you don't have that option, and so you might wear a high-quality mask. And what I say high-quality mask is a mask that um, fits you well, uh, like we call an N95 or a KN94 mask if you're in a high-risk uh, area. I'd like to see it easier to get vaccinated. I think, um, you know, we, we're very pro-vaccine country in general, 
but our attitude to COVID vaccination is dropping off. I think because of this reliance on infection to do the job, which is is A, not enough, and B, in my view, quite a dangerous way to do it because it ignores the effects of long COVID for starters. It's not really taking into the fact that it's not working well enough. You know, we've had 5,000 deaths already this year from COVID, officially COVID, as opposed to excess deaths, which is closer to 10,000 deaths. Compare that to flu, we've had about 300 deaths. Uh, you know, so it's a huge difference. And, uh, and we need to get everybody vaccinated, in my view, is a very strong argument for young kids to get vaccinated as well who, who cannot at the moment. And we're dropping the ball on testing. We're saying testing is no longer needed. It's incredibly powerful to get tested, to know how to protect those around you and to get treated. There is actually a good treatment and more treatments emerging. You can't get treated if you're not tested. So there's definitely things you can and should do and, and we could promote much more strongly. And we've just come through a very warm winter. The Northern Hemisphere has gone through the uh, warmest summer on record. What's climate change going to do biologically to the risk of pandemics? Well, it's sort of the what we know it's going to do, and at least in the in the sort of medium term, uh, versus what's going to happen sort of this the end of this summer, and and, and it's less it's less predictable as to what will happen, you know, sort of this year and 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 into next year. We can say very likely we'll have health threats related, of course, to heat and, of course, to extreme storms and floods and fires. In the more medium term, this change to our habitat, change to our climate and our habitat, means that diseases move from where they used to be to somewhere else or they they increase in places they were once there at low levels or they decrease. For example, mosquito-borne diseases are things that we're seeing a lot of rain at the moment, we're seeing a lot of hot weather, of course, but a lot of rain. This brings very different patterns of mosquito-borne diseases. We mentioned malaria before, but there's quite a number of viruses in that in that category. So climate change brings, you know, really an, an environmental damage that goes with it, where people are, are living closer to, um, to to animal species that they wouldn't normally uh, live close to. Deforestation drives this. It means that we see more pandemics. We see more infectious diseases, not all respiratory, some transmitted by insects um, or, or transmitted by waterborne um, roots, a very serious threat to, to pandemics. There's no doubt we're going to see more and more threats. We've seen a lot over the last 40 years. Of course, only this one uh, since HIV has really taken hold, but we've had quite a number of scares, SARS, MERS, Zika virus, and so on. Um, and, and that number is expected to increase. So there's a lot of scope to, to to handle this much better, which is what the UN high-level meetings are going to address. But at the moment, we act very parochially, not very collectively. Um, we act very slowly. And, you know, speed and partnership and a one-world approach is the only way to tackle uh, these things. So, you know, and including climate change itself, not just the, uh, the, the health effects. So we've got some work to do. Um, it sounds all very scary. It needn't be that way. COVID needn't have been uh, that way. We took some, you know, very bizarre casual decisions as a world, not Australia. They took the good decisions, but the world took some very slow decisions back in January, February, March 2020. And here we are nearly four years later with, uh, you know, an illness that's cost 25 million people, still uh, millions are dying a year and has set the world back economically and, and back on 
on its heels for so many other health reasons. So um, I hope we've learned our lesson, but I'm concerned that may take a while yet for that to sink in. And just finally, is this an infection which will ever move out of the pandemic phase? I think there's scope for COVID to be dealt with, but it's going to take two elements for that to happen. You know, we, we don't have to think of COVID as a forever virus. I mean, at the moment, it's certainly looking uh, that way. But firstly, we've got to face that it's still there. You know, 4 million deaths a year that we're going to face this year. The next most important disease that we've talked about already, tuberculosis, is 1.5 million people. And we think of tuberculosis as, you know, close enough to the worst infectious disease we've ever faced. So COVID is, is still huge. But if we face it, firstly face it with the tools we've got um, and the modern science that we have, we, we know so much more now about what to do about acute COVID, what to do about long COVID, still learning, of course, but the insights just in the last little while. For, for example, just in the last little while, we've learned what you might have predicted, but is now clear that the dose you get infected with, not just whether you get infected or not, but the dose of virus that you get infected with matters a lot. So if you get less virus because, you know, you've been trying to breathe clean air or whatever, then you're much better off. Now, that makes intuitive sense, but now we know that's, uh, that, that's the case. So there's a lot we can do if we're aware of it. And then secondarily is to use a sort of operation warp speed approach to the tools that are going to knock this on its head. We can have much better tools than we have now. We can have a nasal spray that... Um, uh, protects us for life, for example, or at least protects us for infection for a decent period of time. That's feasible. That's in train. We can have drugs that uh, that work much more effectively, therapies than the ones that are there at the moment, not just for acute disease, but also for chronic disease. These sorts of inventions are happening. Uh, they absolutely are happening. We're approaching them a bit casually. Um, warp speed is, of course, the the, the, the President Trump terminology for rushing the, you know, accelerating, I should say, in a very positive way, the vaccine program in 2020, a miracle I would never would have predicted we could have made a vaccine in anything like that speed. We need that same sort of urgency. The cost is is tiny compared to the impact, or ongoing impact of COVID, which is in the trillions of dollars. You know, and and we could see the end of it. There, there's no question. Just like we've seen the end of TB in the developed world, of course, we haven't seen the end of tuber tuberculosis in the developing world because there's no will to do it. But with COVID, with the with the will and with the tools, we can see the end of it um, in, in the same way as we've seen the end of of other infections. I was terrified we wouldn't get to a positive ending point, but we have, Brendan. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Norman. And that, of course, was Professor Brendan Crabb of the Burnett Institute. Norman, that was quite a good chat. Yep. And as always, Brendan's got a lot to say and very sensible. Yeah, maybe he should be your co-host from now on. You could do it with Brendan. You'll leave me behind. <laughs> Find another man. <laughs> I would never. Oh, well, we'd better leave that there for now. We'll catch you all next week. See you then. <laughs>